Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it has been preserved for us over the centuries and that it is translated into our language so that we can understand it all the more fully. Lord, we do pray that you may help me as I try and explain your word this morning. We pray that you may keep error far from my lips and that what I say may be your truth. May you speak through me this morning so that the people here are encouraged to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and you, our Heavenly Father, all the more fully because of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you're doing things, sometimes people come along and ask, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Who gave you authority to do what it is you're doing right now? And sometimes they ask, what is your name? Which is the most intimidating thing uh, when you're doing something for someone to ask you. I still remember when I just finished school and I looked very young for my age. I looked like I was 17 going on 13. And I was at the movies in the middle of the day and police were coming round, rounding up school children and taking down names of those who were truanting uh, from school. And they came to me and, of course, wanted to know which school I was from and what was my name. And so I told them, no, I finished school. And they said, yeah, right. Um, what school do you go to and what is your name? And so I gave them my name and the school that I used to go to for them to check up that, uh, yes, I had indeed graduated from high school. Uh, But it is one of those most intimidating things when you're doing something, someone comes along and says, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? And tell me your name. Why do you have permission to do what you're doing? And this morning, we're going to look at that happening in Ezra chapter 5. We've been working through Ezra for a while now. And this morning, we see that the people of God are building God's temple and opposition arises. We've seen this opposition come again and again. And this morning, it's come as the people of God are being successful on the building. Uh, These people come along and oppose them by questioning their authority. And so that's my first main point this morning. If you've got a church bulletin there, you can see my main points there. And my first main point is that success of God's people arouses question. Success of God's people arouses questions. So we see these people in Ezra chapter 5. If you've got a black church Bible, it's on page 465 that we'll be looking at this morning. We see these people being successful and people coming and asking questions. They're starting to build God's temple. They had started a while ago, which we looked at last year when we were in Ezra. They came back and they started building. And now they have started rebuilding after a bit of time of delay. They've started rebuilding. I might put it into a bit of context for you, uh, just to get the whole plot of where Ezra fits into again. So remember, back in Genesis, you've got Abraham there. Abraham is called by God. He has some sons. Those sons are then uh, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. Well, no, not Abraham's sons. Abraham has a son called Isaac. Isaac has a son called Jacob. Jacob is Israel. Israel then has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. They are then go to Egypt when there's a famine. They are enslaved in Egypt while they're there, the tribes. They then are brought out with the exodus 
come to the promised land, live there for a time, sin a lot, God gets angry, God kicks them out of the promised land by taking them to Babylon. Then they spend some time in Babylon and then God mercifully brings them back under the leadership of King Cyrus and they are allowed to come back to the land and rebuild what was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then there's a period of time where they go from rebuilding to not rebuilding and opposition arising. And that is what we see this morning. This is one of those stages of rebuilding the temple and opposition coming against them. And that's where we see in verse 3 that people come and start to want to know why they're doing the work that they've done. Because there's been a long period of inactivity. And now suddenly, as we saw last week, Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, come along and get the people working again. And so this arouses attention from the enemies there in that land. They come wanting to know who said the Israelites could start work again. And we see that in verse 3. Ezra chapter 5, verse 3, we read, At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shetha Bozani, and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, What are the names of the men constructing this building? They come along and ask for authority and they ask for names like, show me your identification papers. Where do you belong to? Just like I was intimidated by the police coming along at the movie theatre and saying, what school do you belong to and what is your name? Why are these people so surprised, uh, so interested in what authority they have? Well, it's because they're being successful. The work is coming along. It had a stage where it stopped. They built the altar. They built the foundations. Then there was this period where opposition stopped them from working. Then last week we've seen they've started rebuilding again. And they're doing it well. What is happening? It's described in verse 8 in their report to King Darius. The enemy writes, The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. They're doing solid work there. They're getting large stones, big ones, ones that you probably have to roll across the ground. No one can lift those. They're big rocks that they're bringing and they're putting timbers around it. They're they're structuring the building so that it will stand. Any earthquakes that come along, any trouble that comes... This building will probably withstand that because we're making sure it's constructed well. So they're doing solid work. And they're also, uh, the work is described, uh, continued to be described in verse 8 as the work is being carried on with diligence. They're being diligent. They're, They're working hard. And it is making rapid progress. It's not like they're getting large stones and timbers and being diligent, working hard, but not actually doing much. You know how... You see that with some construction sites. They seem to stay there for a long time. There seems to be a lot of activity going on, but not much success. The structure doesn't seem to work up all that quickly at all. And you wonder, what are they doing there? But that's not these guys. They're diligent. They've got, they've got big rocks. They've got timber. And they're making rapid progress, which worries these enemies. So that they ask these questions and oppose them. And they're doing it under their direction, in their hands. They're they're controlling uh, this work. They've got good supervisors supervising the work so that it goes well. So they're worried. And they oppose these people by asking these questions. And it's still the same today. You are called to build the temple of God. How are you called to build the temple of God? Well, it's not by doing it like these Israelites here in Jerusalem. No, you're called to build the temple of God 
by being a stone yourself in God's temple. You are called to belong to God and to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ as God's temple. You are supposed to be a good rock, being there, building up God's temple. And you're not only supposed to be a rock yourself, you're supposed to help others become good rocks of the temple. You're supposed to find people who are not part of the temple of God and bring them in so that they are part of God's temple. And you do that by declaring the gospel to them, the gospel that you have embraced yourself about that cornerstone, that foundation of Jesus Christ. You tell them the gospel. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're not part of God's temple, I want to encourage you to become part of God's temple. How do you do that? Well, it's not by your own good works outweighing your bad works. You do have to recognise that you're a sinner. But you must turn to God in repentance and faith so that you can be part of God's temple. You must admit that you have done wrong things. You've sinned against God and you're sorry. You don't want to do that in the future. And that the way that you are saved The way that you make up for those bad works that you have done is through belief in Jesus' death for you, that at the cross Jesus took the punishment for you so that you will not be punished for your sins because Jesus has already paid the price. You haven't paid the price, Jesus has paid the price and you believe that is true. As soon as you do those two things, repent, admit that you're sorry for your sins and believe that Jesus paid for your sins, you become a stone in God's temple. And I want to encourage you to do that this morning. And if you are already a stone, I want to encourage you to continue doing that, to making stones in God's temple by bringing people who are not part of God's temple to be a part of his temple. That is your job today. Your job is to build God's temple by being a good stone yourself and by bringing other people in to be part of God's kingdom, be part of his temple. But if you start doing that, you will experience opposition just like these people in Israel experienced opposition for building God's physical temple there. They experience these questions coming and people will do the same to you. They will come at you with questions as to, What is your authority for doing this? What is your authority for being a Christian? What is your authority for bringing other people to be a part of Christianity? And they will particularly do it if you're successful. If you're successful like these Israelites were in their building projects. Someone who isn't declaring God's kingdom, isn't building God's temple, rarely gets these kinds of questions. But if you are solid in your work, like this building was solid here, if you're solid about your convictions and people know that you are different from those around you because you are solid in your convictions about what is right and what is wrong, if you are diligent, if you work hard at being a Christian, you will get these questions. If you're making rapid progress, if people see you growing rapidly yourself as a Christian, they will ask these questions. What's going on in your life? And if you are organised, like these people were organised, You're submitting to direction, supervisors, telling you what to do. People will ask these questions. So the question then is, how do you deal with these questions? You're meant to be making rapid progress. How do you deal with these questions? How did the Israelites deal with these questions when they were asked, what is your authority? What is your name? 
who let who authorized you to do this work? Well, my second main point this morning is that you're supposed to, God's people answer questions persuasively. They answer the questions, but they're also persuasive in their answers. We're actually given their answers in the letter that is then written to King Darius about the work that's going on in Jerusalem. And they report, these enemies here, they report the answers from these Israelites. And the first way that they answer them is by giving a religious argument. They give three different arguments. I should have put them there in the bulletin uh, next to the main point, to the second main point. There's a religious ar- argument, there's a historical argument, and there's a political argument. Religious, historical, political. The religious argument is the first one. And what's that? They say that God is our authority. They use a religious argument to say who gives them authority to do this. And we see that in verse 11. The enemies report there in verse 11 to the king, what is the answer that they got? This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. Who is their authority? Who are they servants to? Verse 11, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Not the God of just this area, the God of all heaven, the God of all the earth. We are his servants. You want to know who our authority is? Who's above us? It's God. And we're building his temple, the one that he knocked down because we were sinful in the past. But it is our God who has given us the authority to build this temple. The other argument that they use is not just a religious argument, they also use a historical argument. History is our authority. We're supposed to be in this place. What do they say in verse 11? We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago. One that a great king of Israel built and finished. It is not a new structure. They're rebuilding an old structure. One that has been here a long, long time. Since the time of King Solomon when he built this. And that's who the reference is to, the great king. King Solomon, the great king of Israel. No one surpassed him in, in the extent of his lands. It was such a time of peace and prosperity. That great king, King Solomon... He is the one who built this temple and we are rebuilding it. So they've got a historical right to rebuild here. Just like uh, in different nations. People come along, they invade and they take over and then the original landowners stick up their hands centuries later and say, we're the original landowners here and often the governments will give land back to the original owners of that land. And that's what they're trying to claim here. We were here first. We had this temple a long, long time before you were born, and we are simply rebuilding it. History is our authority. History is on our side. And then thirdly, they have a political argument. What's their political argument? The government said we could. The government is on our side. What do they say then in verse 13? We looked at verse 11 and 12. There's a Uh, religious and a historical argument there. Then in verse 13 they say, However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree 
to rebuild this house of God. The king told us to come and do it. And how supportive was he? Did he just let us go back? No. He even, verse 14, he even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple in Babylon. He was so supportive that he even took articles of gold and silver, very expensive stuff, very sacred stuff, it's actually in a temple in Babylon, And he's so supportive that he'll take those out of that temple and give them to the Israelites to go and put back in the temple once they've rebuilt it. He is highly supportive of these Israelites going back. He's not just given them permission, he's given them funding, kind of like the government today. They can give you permission to do something, yes, yes, that's okay. If you get funding from them to do what they've given you permission to do, that's a real big bonus. That's showing the government is fully behind what you're doing. Imagine that you want to renovate your house. So you apply to the local council. Can I rebuild my house? Can I put on another story? And they say, yes, you can. And we're going to help by giving you some gold and silver for it. Doesn't happen. But it happened here. The government is fully behind them and doesn't just give you gold and silver. He actually appointed a governor to go back with them. The guy named Shezbazar, halfway through verse 14, which is a new paragraph in your New International Versions there in your pews, it says, Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Shezbazar, whom he had appointed governor. And he told him, Take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Shezbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction but is not yet finished. He didn't just leave them and say, okay, you've got permission. He didn't just say, I'm going to support you by giving you articles of silver and gold. He also appointed Shezbazar. Some people think that this may be actually Zerubbabel, uh, another name for him, but it's probably not. He's probably uh, a Persian who was told to go back and help them set up the temple. We can't be quite sure, but it looks like he actually gave them a Persian governor to go back and help oversee the work and help protect these Israelites as they're rebuilding the temple. So they use a very weighty political argument here. They don't just have a religious reason. They don't just have a historical reason. They have political reason. They have the King Cyrus telling them it's okay. The King Cyrus giving them articles of silver and gold and the King giving them a governor to oversee the work. And it's still the same today. We should use very similar arguments in the questions that people throw at us as to why we are Christians and why we are always on about Jesus Christ. We see that in the New Testament. We see the early Christians using these kinds of arguments. People say, why are you doing what you're doing? What did Peter and John say in Acts 4, which we just read? They say, the God of heaven, Jesus Christ. They point to Jesus. They use a religious argument as to why they're doing what they're doing. We see that they also use historical arguments. Again and again, the early Christians are going back to the Old Testament scriptures and proving that Jesus is the Christ. They use historical arguments to back up their claims as to why Jesus should be trusted in and why they should be stones in God's temple. They even use political arguments to protect themselves. Paul pulls out that trump card, doesn't he, that he is a Roman citizen a couple of times. They're starting to stretch him out. 
to beat him, and what does he say? Is it legal what you're doing? He uses a political argument. I'm just doing something that I'm allowed to do in this kingdom. I haven't done anything wrong. And he uses that political argument. I can freely be a Christian and proclaim in this name. There's no law against it. And so he uses that political card. And you should do the same. When people question you, why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus Christ? Use those kinds of arguments. Give a religious argument. Say, God gives me an authority to be a Christian. God has said that if I repent of my sins and believe in Jesus Christ, I am one of his children. It's as clear as that. God gives me authority to be part of his family. It is such a privilege. We think that it is you know, one of those things we just do, but it is a privilege to be able to be part of God's kingdom and to be able to use the religious argument. Don't back down from it. Tell people that God gives you authority to be a Christian when they ask, why are you a Christian? And use history. Christianity is not built on a fairy tale. It is built on historical fact. Go back to that again and again. When people ask you why you're a Christian, say it is because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. In history, there is historically reliable evidence that Jesus Christ came, lived, died and came back to life. That is why I'm a Christian. Use a historical argument and use political arguments. Say, I'm a Christian and I'm allowed to be a Christian. Don't you try and intimidate me in this country. Australian law says I can be a Christian. I have religious freedom here. Don't try and intimidate me as though somehow it's illegal in this country to be a Christian. Use the political arguments. And when they ask what is your authority for then telling others about Christianity trying to build God's temple by bringing in other stones, use the same types of arguments. Use a religious argument. Say, I'm always on about Jesus Christ and I'm always trying to bring people in to God's kingdom because God tells me to. Flat statement. God tells me to be an evangelist. God tells me to share the gospel and that is why I do it. Use a historical argument. Say, Christians have always shared the good news of Jesus Christ. Missionary work has happened year after year after year, decade after decade, century after century. Christians have always behaved this way. It is not that surprising that I want you to become a Christian and that I don't shut up about Jesus Christ. It has happened again and again in history that people like me have wanted to share the gospel and use a political argument when people say, why are you always telling people about Jesus Christ? Say, I have the freedom to do so. Some countries will outlaw the freedom to tell others, but they'll say it's okay for you to have a personal faith. There are countries around the world as we speak that have laws that you can keep it to yourself, but you can't share it with others. You can't be an evangelist. You can't try and persuade other people to become Christians. But here in Australia, we have the freedom to do so. Don't fall into that culturally um, acceptable statement that people often will throw at you. Just keep your religion to yourself. 
say, I have a right in this country to share what I believe. I am allowed to share the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean you'd be a dropkick and just um, walk all over people all the time and constantly on about Jesus Christ and are completely insensitive to them. But stand by your right to share the gospel in this country. Many people around the world do not have that right. They do not have the political okay to share the gospel. But you do. Make sure you take advantage of that political argument that you have. So when opposition comes, be persuasive in your answers. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have, the reason that you're a stone in God's kingdom. But I also want to give you some encouragement this morning that I think is found in the text as well, because it's kind of scary. Whenever someone opposes you and you know you're meant to give these arguments, it's kind of scary to argue back with someone who's questioning your authority. And so I want to encourage you this morning that God's grace is shown in opposition. God's grace is shown in opposition. That's my third main point this morning. The Israelites had evidence of God's grace here even when they were experiencing opposition. How did we, where do we see that? Well, firstly, we see it that the work did not stop while they were being opposed. Verse 5. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. Tatanai could have walked in with force and said, stop what you're doing until I get a reply from King Darius. But he doesn't. God's grace is shown in that the work continues even while the letter is going. And the letter could have taken four months to go and get a reply back. Four months lost if Tatanai comes with his soldiers there and blocks the work. But God's grace is shown that his eye is on them and allows the work to continue. We also see God's grace in the fact that the enemies here are very even-handed in their letter. As you read through this letter, it is very different from the letter of chapter 4, which we looked at a few weeks ago, which is actually in the future. The enemies there are very underhanded in the way that they speak about the Israelites and their work. These enemies, they're more honest. It's more like they're just questioning what's going on here. They want a reply. They want a response from the king, but they're very even-handed. They give a very honest reply here, and that is a sign of God's grace as well. And they're also happy to check out the facts. They're not coming in on their own authority to stop them. They're happy to check out the facts. What does it say in verse 17? Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did, in fact, issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. They didn't say, no, Cyrus would never have said that. No, they write an official letter and try and find out what did Cyrus say? Did he, in fact, say that? And God's grace is still in a similar way shown in the opposition that comes to us today. When people ask you questions about your authority, God's grace is shown in this way. People are happy to not stop you physically from sharing the gospel while they think about it. They don't say, stop altogether, and then we will see what we decide, and then you can start again. They're often happy to let you go on sharing the gospel. Even governments do that. People are often fair to you and happy to listen to your reasons like these guys were. They're very other people when they ask you questions, they're very even handed in trying to understand fully your answers and not slant them in a way that they want things to go. 
and people will often be very careful to investigate the facts. If you share your reasons why you are a Christian, people often will then look at the reasons. They'll say, okay, you use a historical argument for Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. Okay, let me look at that. Let me look at the New Testament. Let me read it. Just like these people were trying to investigate, did Cyrus really say that? People will sit down with you and investigate the facts. Often those people who are asking questions, opponents of you, become Christians. Because of God's grace there, while you're answering their questions, they start to check the facts and they start to realise, yes, this is true. And they actually become stones themselves. So I want to ask you, are you opposed in building God's temple? If not, is it because you aren't being successful? Is it because you're not building solidly? You're not working hard with diligence? I encourage you to work hard at building God's temple. And then when the questions come, do you answer in this way? Do you give religious arguments? Do you say, I'm a Christian because God says so? He says I can be? Do you give historical arguments as to why you are a Christian? And do you give political reasons? Do you say, I've got the freedom to do so? Do you answer in that way? Or when people ask you questions, do you back away? Do you not say much at all? Or do you actually go on the attack and start attacking them? And so getting their back up so that they'll never want to listen to what you say. Answer their questions when they come. And always look for the grace of God that's there. It can be scary when those questions come. But God often allows the enemies to be even-handed in their dealing with you and that they often really want to do check those facts out. Look for signs of God's grace to encourage you as you answer their questions. Let us speak with our God now. Let us speak with him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to build your temple, to be stones ourselves and to bring other people in to be stones of your temple. Lord, we pray that we may build successfully, that we may work hard, that we may work solidly and that when we are successful and opposition comes, that we may answer their questions, may answer them persuasively with religious arguments, saying that you have told us to do what we're doing. Answer with historical arguments and answer with even political arguments. We thank you for the governments that are over us and the freedom we have in this land. Lord, we pray that we may take advantage of it and stand by our rights to be Christians in this country and to share the gospel with those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.